Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to Jeremiah 31. I'm going to read Jeremiah 31, beginning with verse 31, down through verse 40. And this passage will provide a little bit of context for our sermon passage. The sermon this morning actually comes from Hebrews chapter 10. So in a moment, we'll turn to Hebrews chapter 10. And we'll look at verses 10 through 18 there in Hebrews 10. But first, let's look at Jeremiah 31, 31 through 40. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 40. Hear now the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in that day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Thus says the Lord, Who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night? Who disturbs the sea and its waves roar? The Lord of of hosts is His name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel For all that they have done, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that the city shall be built for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. The surveyor's line shall again extend straight forward over the hill, Gareb. Then it shall turn to Goath. And the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be holy to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or thrown down anymore forever. Amen and amen. Jeremiah, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, promises to Jerusalem, there on the eve, on the edge of their exile into Babylon, that a new day is coming. A day in which the relationship with God will be fundamentally changed. They won't have a covenant relationship like the one that Moses established. They will have a covenant relationship that will be established in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And God here says that if you can remove the sun, moon, and stars from the sky, then you can remove your relationship with Him in Christ. 
If you can measure the expanse of the heavens, and if you can find out the foundations of the earth, then you can comprehend what is the love of God in Christ for His people. It's one of my favorite illustrations from the Scriptures. Because in this excessively scientific age, the farther and farther we reach into space, And the more and more we measure the expanse of the universe, what do we discover? How little we know. And this is precisely what God has embedded in His promise thousands of years ago. That the deeper and deeper you dig into the grace and goodness and love of God, the more you find it is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. There is no horizon. To this ocean of love. With that in mind. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Our sermon series through the book of Hebrews. Has come to a point that John Calvin called the climax. This is the dramatic moment. Where Hebrews 1.1. Through Hebrews 10.18. Is the indicative. The statement of fact, the declaration of truth. Jesus is better. Better than the angels, better than Moses, better than Aaron and all his descendants. Better than the old priesthood, better than the old tabernacle, better than the old sacrifices. And this is the final indicative. The final gospel declaration. Beginning with verse 19, those gospel truths will be applied, will be set upon our lives in order to order those lives according to the truths of the gospel. So let us look once more at the gospel of Jesus Christ according to the letter to the Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 10. Hear now the word of the Lord. By that will, we have been sanctified... Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts And in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is remission of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Amen. And amen. As a teenage boy, I came across a rusty bolt. And I needed it to come out. You could see the lines of orange coming out from around the head 
which signified that inside the threads had come together in a chemical reaction, oxidization or something like that, and they had rusted hard into place. So I thought, I know the solution to this. I found the largest, meanest-looking pair of pliers I could find. I snapped them onto the head of the bolt, and I threw my weight against it, and I pushed, and I pulled, and it didn't budge. So I went back, and I got a bigger, meaner-looking pair of pliers with a longer handle. And I snapped it onto the head of the bolt, and I threw my weight against it, and I pushed, and I pulled, and it didn't move. So I got a length of pipe, and I slid it over the handle of those pliers, increasing leverage and torque. I didn't know those terms, I just knew I had seen my dad do that. And I threw my weight against it, and I pushed and I pulled, and it it wouldn't move. So I stood on the pipe, and it didn't move. So I jumped on the pipe, and it moved, ever so slightly. And I got really excited. And I jumped up with all my might, slammed down on the pipe, and it moved. The pipe and the pliers landed on the floor. I landed on the floor. I went over with excitement and joy and saw that I had sheared the head off that bolt clean. Knowing my hopelessness and helplessness now, I went to fetch my dad. He walked into the shed, he looked at the headless bolt, rusted in place, and said, did you consider using WD-40? <coughs> and I went, no, no, I'm a teenage boy, I thought more power was always the answer. This is often what we're tempted to do spiritually. We know that we need to get sin out of our hearts. We know that we need to get sin out of our spouses, out of our children, our co-workers, our church. And so we reach for the biggest, meanest looking pair of pliers we can find. And we try to add more power, more torque. And Jesus comes along and says, have you considered using love? Have you considered using grace? You see, the truth that the Holy Spirit would have us believe today, the great gospel message of the book of Hebrews, is that Jesus saves entirely and completely. I'll unpack those two words as we go. For now, suffice to say, Jesus saves entirely and completely. So let's separate ourselves from sin By His grace. Let us use the gospel as the chief tool to separate us from sin. With this in mind, look at verse 10. By that will, we have been sanctified. The phrase, by that will, refers us back to verse 9. In which Jesus is said to have come into the world, quoting Psalm 40, saying, I have come to do your will, O God. So that will by which we are sanctified is the will of the Father. It is God's decree, God's plan from all eternity that we should be sanctified. What is the original 
cause by which our sanctification happens, by which we are separated from our sin, by which its curse and condemnation is no longer hanging over us, by which its corruption and power is no longer at work within us. The original source of that sanctification is the will of our Heavenly Father. But He has used an instrumental cause. He's used a means. It says, through the body offered, which is Jesus Christ. The offering of Jesus' body is then that instrument or tool. By saying the body of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is summing up His earthly ministry. His taking to Himself a true body and a reasonable soul, His incarnation. Further, in saying His body, it refers to His being born under the law, in poverty and obscurity. His full righteous obedience, keeping every jot and tittle to perfection in a way that we could never deliver. That we should have sinlessness imputed to us in Him. But in that body, it also speaks to the crucifixion. That death which we deserved, which He died on our behalf. And most beautifully and joyfully for us this morning, when it says the body of Jesus Christ, it means also that resurrected, now glorious body, which is at the right hand of God in heaven. To say that it is the offering of the body of Jesus Christ is to say the sum total of that person and his work is the instrument by which the will of the Father was achieved, namely our sanctification, our separation from sin. Do you want to remove sin from your life? Then you must offer Christ. Then it must be the offering of Christ that you apply to your heart and your mind. That you apply to your relationships, your marriage, your children, your neighbors, your co-workers. It is His gospel, His offering of Himself that is in the sum total our sanctification, our separation from sin. Now the Holy Spirit explains this once more by contrasting the old way with the new. In verse 11, he gives us the insufficiency of the old way. In verse 12, he gives us the superiority of the new way. This is a pattern we have seen repeatedly all this year in chapters 1 through 10. So let's do it one more time. Verse 11, and every priest. All right, our first imperfection. We know that there's something going wrong with this old system. How do we know? It says every priest. If the priest had done his job right the first time, there wouldn't have been a second priest. So by saying every priest, the Holy Spirit has immediately admitted that each and every priest fell short. Otherwise, there would have only been one. Secondly, He stands ministering daily. His perpetual posture of standing means that his work is never done. He can't sit down. In fact, he is ministering daily. He has to show up every day. The work is never done. 
It's never accomplished. He never arrives. And then thirdly, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. A bull, a goat, a ram. Again and again and again. Why repeatedly? Because it's not working. The sins are actually not being separated from the worshiper. The worshiper is not actually sanctified through the blood of the bulls and the goats. There is no real forgiveness. There is no real expiation, sanctification, separation from sin. But in some of the most precious words in all the Bible, verse 12, but this man. But this man. Just as saying that the offering of the body of Jesus Christ was meant by the Holy Spirit to point us to the totality of the work of Jesus, his taking a body in the incarnation, his obeying his Father in the body in his earthly ministry, his sacrificing of his body on the cross in his crucifixion and death, and his raising up from the dead to glory forever in his resurrection and ascension in the body. So too, this phrase in verse 12, but this man is meant to sum up the totality of his person. This God-man. This man in whom the fullness of deity dwells. If you can exegete that phrase for me, you are way ahead of me. The fullness of deity dwells. Alright, I'm lost already. In this man. Fully God, fully man. This is what we confess. And it was he who offered one sacrifice for sins forever. Why is that one sacrifice sufficient when all the untold thousands that unleashed rivers of blood into the streets of Jerusalem were so insufficient? Because of who he is. Fully God and fully man. This one sacrifice is the sacrifice of the righteous, sinless Son of God. This man offered a sacrifice worth more than all creation combined. And thus was able to redeem creation from sin and misery. This is what we confess is the superiority of Jesus Christ. That if we were to be separated from our sins, if we are to be sanctified, notice again in verse 11, the phrase that has become familiar. The sacrifices could not take away sin. But Jesus did. He actually sanctifies. He actually separates us from sin. So if we want to be separated from the guilt and shame of our sin, we need Jesus. And if we want to be separated from the power and the temptation of our sin, we need Jesus. So if you want to actually thread sin out of the holes in your heart, you need Jesus. You need the God-man sacrificed for you. And His righteousness freely given to you. The Gospel. 
That's the tool. That's the instrument by which the will of the Father, our sanctification, is accomplished. It is done. So when we wrestle with one another in our relationships, and when we wrestle with ourselves, and we are wrestling against sin and Satan, principalities and powers, we must be careful that we do not bring the weapons of the flesh to this fight. It is a spiritual warfare, and we need spiritual weapons. The gospel. The truths about Jesus Christ. But what then is Jesus doing now? If it is all accomplished, if it is all complete, what then is he doing now? This is the source of encouragement for us. In verse 12, he sat down at the right hand of God from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. In this way, the Holy Spirit points our gaze into the heavenly places where there at the right hand of God sits Jesus. This posture of sitting shows, as illustrated by contrast, that he is done. He sat down because his work was finished. As he said on the cross when he hung there, it is finished. Nothing more remains to be done. All that must be accomplished has been accomplished. All that remains is to apply it. But notice what he's doing in the heavens. He's seated at the right hand of God. That is, he is exercising divine power. He is in a royal office. He's not waiting for his enemies to become a footstool idly or inactively. He is actively exerting his royal authority, making his enemies into a footstool for his feet. He is extending the scepter of his power, Psalm 2 over the kingdoms of this world, to bring them into obedience to Him, in submission to Him. He is, according to verse 14, sanctifying those who are perfect. Is anyone else struggling with that logic? Let's read verse 14 again. For by one offering He has perfected, Done. Perfect. Jesus dies on the cross. Perfection. Those who are being sanctified. Well, if I'm perfect, then what am I being sanctified? From. Ah, see, here's the rub. The Holy Spirit is testifying to us. This one great truth. He has worked in us once for all the solution to each and every sin that is to come. To each and every sin that has come. When it says that Jesus offered his body once for all, it means all. Each and every sin, each and every sorrow and struggle is answered in the sacrifice and life of Jesus Christ. His work is the work we need. And when it says likewise, that his, this man offered a sacrifice forever, 
It means that there is no more to be given. That the reach of his salvation is total on both axes. The utter ends of your earthly experience and the utter ends of the world's history. Whether you consider it the width of your life or its breadth, the answer is still in Christ. And he is the answer. He is perfecting those who are perfect. He is sanctifying those who are sanctified. We who have been set apart from our sin in the person and work of Jesus Christ are yet experiencing that sanctification, are yet coming into conformity with that sanctification. And so let us keep the tension tight. Are we sinless in Christ? Yea and amen. Are we yet sinning daily and needing to be made sinless in Christ? Yea and amen. Luther would put it this way, I am at the same time sinner and saint. But not in the same way. I have an identity and I am learning to live consistent with that identity. It is with this theology laid down that the Holy Spirit turns us back in verse 15 to promises which were made in the older covenant in anticipation of the reality in the new covenant. He says, the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us for after he had said before, notice in verse 17, then he adds. This is the same pattern that we saw in the previous verses last Lord's Day. The Holy Spirit not only bears witness to the truth of the words that were given to us in Psalm 110, to the truth of the words that here are given to us from, from Jeremiah 31, the Holy Spirit also testifies that there is theology in the syntax, that there is meaning to the word order. The fact that in Jeremiah 31, he first offers a new covenant in which laws are written on the heart and on the mind, and then promises that their sins and lawless deeds will be remembered no more, is a significant principle for us to appropriate. That we should understand the logic of the gospel and not just its content. That we should understand how Christ saves and not simply that he saves. That we might work and love and labor in a manner which is consistent with his manner. That we should adopt the same one, two step dance. That the Spirit uses to save sinners. So what are these two steps? First verse 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days says the Lord. As I've unpacked before the word covenant has to do with this idea of relationship. God has promised a loving relationship. Summed up in the repeated phrase I will be your God and you will be my people. There will be a bond between us, a friendship and a fellowship. We will constitute a family with him. But notice the point of origin in verse 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them. It is unilateral. It is imposed from the heavens. It is parallel then to verse 10. By that will. 
Our loving relationship with God is constituted by God's interference in our life. Our reconciliation to God is caused because He gets involved in our lives and in our world and brings us to Himself. It is His will that we should be saved. It is His desire. This is very important for us as we try to sanctify one another and as we try to sanctify ourselves. Rule number one. You didn't start this. This wasn't your idea. This was God's idea. This isn't my church. You were all here long before I got here. This church predates us. It's not our plaything to do with it whatever we want to do. God was here first. And when we turn to all those whom we love, we start with this principle. God was here first. And it's really hard. I'm, I'm going to pick on one example because it's the one closest and most immediate to this, this illustration. It's really hard for parents to remember this sometimes. Because you think it started with you. Because humanly speaking, it kind of looks and feels an awful lot like it started with you. You were there at the beginning. But just as children didn't choose their parents, parents didn't choose their children. God was at work. And I mean that whether it's biology or adoption. Because every single family story starts with the sovereignty of God as he arranges the world. It is he who put this church together. It is he who put this marriage together. It is he who put this family together. It begins with his will. His will for our sanctification. He longs to bring sin out of us. He longs to bring sin out of the world. And that is exactly what he's doing. And that is exactly what the will is that he is working out for us. I am making a new covenant. I'm making a new relationship. It's my initiative. God is first. We are always reactors and responders. He starts. And when he starts, this is how he begins. I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds. I will write them. This quote from the Holy Spirit in verse 16 reverses what the Holy Spirit had actually said in Jeremiah 31, minds and hearts. But either way, the, th the thrust and emphasis is intended to show the interiority of the new covenant. This new relationship with God is not like Moses' relationship, where it was about hair and clothing and diet, where it was about land and living and sowing crops, where the law was imposed on the exterior of the worshiper. In order to create this conformity that was exterior, in order to be a lesson, to teach them of their need for holiness, but not so the new covenant. No, the will of God for our sanctification will now reside within us. This partly points us to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Where he says, hey, you've heard about murder, I say hate. Hey, you've heard about adultery, I say lust. So part of it points to the fact that the law is now penetrating the interior. 
and changing us from the inside out. But far more, it's actually pointing us to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I will put their, my law in their hearts. The will that I have for their sanctification will be their will. They will want what I want. Because they will have the spirit that I have. Jesus' own spirit that sets him apart from sin dwells in us. That spirit that hovered over the waters, turning chaos and void into creation, hovers over us, turning us from sinners into saints. We have new hearts. Hearts not of stone, but of flesh. Temples of the Holy Spirit. But it will also be written on our minds. We will have new minds. Not the mind of the world, which is after earthly ambitions and appetites. But according to the Apostle Paul, we will have the mind of Christ. Which is after service and love and self-sacrifice. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old is gone, the new is come. It is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. His spirit with a new heart and a new mind. The spirit of Christ and the mind of Christ. Such that we desire conformity to the will of God. Such that we desire To do his will as Jesus did when he came into the world. So this is the first and second step. If we are to be sanctified as a church. If we are to be sanctified as a married couple. If we are to be sanctified as children. If we are to be sanctified as co-workers and laborers. And if we are to thread sin out of ourselves. And out of the world. We must recognize first that the hand on the lever isn't ours. It is God's. And secondly, we must recognize that he is doing it by a total transformation. By making a new humanity, a new creation in Christ Jesus, a new heavens and a new earth. And then he says in verse 17, then he adds, having established the priority of God's will and action, having established the totality of the renovation, having Establish the presence of Christ as the power to do it, he then adds their sins and lawless deeds that will remember no more. On that basis, the Holy Spirit in Jeremiah 31 would teach the Old Testament saint to believe that a day is coming when God will no longer relate to his people on the basis of their sins. For remembering in the Hebrew is not an intellectual activity. Remembering is, is a process of acting upon or treating one. Noah was in the ark and God remembered him. Not meaning he thought about him, but meaning he stopped the water and made it recede. He acted on the knowledge that Noah was there. So it is here. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. I will no longer act on their sins and lawless deeds. I will no longer treat them according to those behaviors. Our relationship will have a different animating principle. A principle of love, grace, and forgiveness. 
How glorious this gospel. That God has said from the heavens, step one, I start the process, not you. Step two, I'm going to change everything from the inside out. Step three, and it's going to be love that drives it all. And that torque, that power that twists the sin out of the soul will be grace, will be love, sovereign love, relentless love that will grab hold our hearts and never let go. I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. In honor of where we're about to go in terms of all the application that comes in the end, let us apply this principle to our relationships. Is the animating principle in your relationship love and grace? Anything less will be insufficient. Anything less will ruin the relationship. Anything less will ruin the person. It is the gospel that saves us. It is Jesus who saves us in total. Each and every sin which has come, is now, or will come, has its answer in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He remembers them no more. Do we? This is the ethic that Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount. That we who are forgiven, forgive others. And that we live by that principle. So that the Holy Spirit could sum up in verse 18, essentially the sum total of all the verses that have gone before, all the way back to 1-1. Now. Meaning in the new covenant. Meaning since the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now. Meaning today. Meaning you don't have to sort it out tonight. Meaning you don't have to figure out tomorrow or this week. Meaning now. Right now. Jesus. Has given us remission. Now. Where there is remission. Forgiveness of these. Now in this world that we live in, this new heavens and this new earth, where righteousness dwells, already but not yet, here but still coming, in this world where grace can be the animating principle of all our relationships, where love can motivate, shape, and guide all that we do, in this world where I do not have to let your sins define how I react. I can let the gospel define my response. Where I don't have to let my sins define how I treat you. I can let grace twist that sin out of our relationship. I can let Jesus' love get into my life, into my relationship, into my conversation where that love and that grace and those gospel truths work on my thoughts, work on my heart, work on my words so that I'm a different person, a new person, a new creation. And there is no longer an offering for sin. And I actually live in a relationship with you.
where you don't have to atone for your wrongdoings. Where I don't have to punish you. Where you don't have to punish me. Where we don't have to play the emotionally manipulative games. Where we don't have to torture one another. Where love and forgiveness and grace is the guiding and governing rule. The law that binds us to one another. Because Jesus saves entirely. Each and every sin that pops up. Forgiven in Christ. Each and every sin that lures and tempts and woos, resisted in Christ, won't happen till the resurrection. But it will happen. Beloved, Jesus saves entirely. He also saves completely. It doesn't have to be just you and me. There's a world of lost souls for whom this is also true. Let's have this truth in our hearts this week and in the weeks ahead so that we might believe it is Jesus who has saved entirely and completely. No other offering is necessary. And so live in love with one another. And so separate ourselves from our sins by the power of that love. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for a sacrifice that truly saves. We thank you for a once-for-all sacrifice that is sufficient for every sinner on earth, that is sufficient for every sin in us. And we pray that this principle would drive our practices and that love, deep, genuine love, would well up within us. We thank you that in a world that misunderstands love, doesn't know where to find it, corrupts it and perverts it, we have chapters 1 through 10 to tell us where to find love. But we also thank you for the chapters to come, 10 through 13, which will tell us what love actually looks like and how to live it. And we pray, Father, that as we make this transition here in this letter, you would seal up in us these precious truths which we have heard these many months. That we would believe the gospel so that we are thus equipped and inspired to live the gospel. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.